Welcome to the Biopractica Professional Podcast Series. Biopractica is an Australian-owned, practitioner-only brand focusing on nutritional and herbal products proven to play a role in preventative medicine. Biopractica is committed to supporting healthcare professionals in developing their knowledge and skills so they can confidently and effectively tackle the major health challenges facing their patients today. To support this commitment, the Learning Hub was established by Biopractica to offer practitioners a collection of educational resources so they can stay informed on the latest in health science research. Welcome everyone and thank you so much for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Roberta Barbiolini and I'm the technical manager here at Biopractica and I'm very excited today to be joined by Dr. Adrian Lepresti. Now Dr. Lepresti is a clinical psychologist and he's actually in private practice in Perth, Western Australia. He's got more than 20 years of clinical experience working with children and adults across a range of mental health conditions. And what I find particularly fascinating is that the way Dr. Lepresti practices is because he's got extensive training in nutritional and lifestyle medicine, he combines his psychology with these modalities as well. He's also a senior lecturer at Murdoch University and a researcher, and he regularly publishes in peer-reviewed journals on the effects of things like diet, exercise, sleep, and herbs and nutritional supplements for the treatment and prevention of mental health disorders, such as depression and anxiety. Adrian's completed several clinical trials, which I have very happily read, where he's investigated the effects of herbal ingredients such as curcumin, saffron, ashwagandha, bacopa for the treatment of mental health disorders. He's also the founder of Personalized Integrative Therapy or PI therapy, which is a really fantastic holistic treatment approach that combines diet, lifestyle and supplements with psychology for patient health. And we're so excited to have you join us today, Adrian. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Roberta. Thanks for having me here. And I have to say, I'm really excited today as well for, to have this discussion with you on the role that inflammation can play as a contributing factor in mood disorders. But maybe before we dive into that, can I ask, Adrian, how did you actually end up specialising in this sort of integrative psychology field? Yeah, first, uh, I mean, I was originally working as a traditional psychologist, so I did my master's and then um, started working out in the field with children and, and adults. And, and my treatment was primarily, you know, your psychological-based treatments, your cognitive behaviour therapy, those types of treatments. And, uh, and while they were very effective and very helpful, um, there's still many people who weren't getting better. And, uh, and I was interested in things like, you know, personally interested in exercise and nutrition. And that's what then really led me to, to investigate you know, the potential of other uh, modalities of treatment. And obviously I've done my research in, in the area of nutrition. Uh, I've looked at kind of other integrative approaches to help improve mood. So, so despite the fact that psychological therapies are helpful, um, one of the things that I was always seeing is always there was more there was different types of psychological therapies that were being introduced, but the outcomes really weren't getting any better. So, so really, you know, I was interested in looking at well, what about if we add something to the psychological treatments, and, and that's really how it's kind of led from there. I think that's fantastic, and to be honest, it's an area of um, you know psychology and mental health practice that I'm hoping grows in the coming years because I think it's so wonderful to see patients getting that holistic care from their primary treatment, you know, healthcare professional, whether it is a psychologist or, you know, a, a team of, of people working together. So I, I think the work you're doing is amazing. Thanks. 
And, you know, I mean, obviously today I'd like to do a bit of a deep dive into one particular facet of, you know, physiology that can really drive mental health disorders, and that is inflammation. So maybe to start with, start with Dr. Lepresti, could you give us a little bit of an overview of what does the research actually show is the link between inflammation and mood disorders? Well, there's more and more research now confirming that uh, you know, depression in particular, most of the research has been in the area of depression, but certainly research uh, with regards to anxiety disorders, uh, ADHD, uh, bipolar disorder, uh, even schizophrenia, things like that, where there is a link between inflammation and, and the mental health uh, problems. So people with depression and other mental health disorders generally present with, on average, present with high levels of inflammation. So if you measure things like C-reactive protein or other cytokines, their levels are higher. It's not at the level that you would see in your traditional inflammatory diseases, but uh, it's a chronic, chronic low-grade inflammation that persists for years. And, uh, and that's what we're consistently seeing. Uh, we're seeing that uh, there's an association there. So just because people have depression and inflammation doesn't mean inflammation is the cause, but, but more and more research is looking at it as a causative factor. And there is evidence showing that if you induce inflammation in somebody, it would have an adverse effect on their mood. So, so the, the research is certainly increasing and, and we can pretty much confirm that there's a, definitely a, an association there. Yeah, and I mean, certainly, you know, some of the reading I've done has shown that the, the one of the most well-established links between inflammation and mood changes is so-called sickness behaviour. You know, like, you know, that, that whole typical thing you think about when someone gets the flu, they get inflamed and they sort of, they self-isolate, they become a little bit sad. And I've read some really interesting research that says, hypothesises that this might have posed a, an evolutionary advantage because if we isolate when we're sick, we don't spread the germs. But I guess what you're talking about is quite a different sort of inflammation, that sort of low-grade, insidious, chronic inflammation. Yeah, it's, it's, it's persisting. You know, obviously, there's, there's the acute inflammation that occurs, and, and that's certainly beneficial and, and may be adaptive. But when it lingers for long periods of time, uh, then that can have detrimental effects on our, all our organs, and our, our brain is particularly susceptible. And and, and this, you know, there's the research showing that uh, people who have experienced trauma as, ch in, as, as children will uh, have a higher risk of having inflammation as adults. So, so this inflammation could have been going on from, uh, you know, a very, very young age. So, I mean, if, if we look at it mechanistically, Adrian, what is it that's actually happening that's driving these mood changes in patients that have this sort of insidious low-grade inflammation? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's difficult to kind of work out. I mean, I think certainly inflammation, you know, the, the excess cytokines and, and uh, inflammatory markers and things like that, they can have damaging effects on our organs. So, so just the de de degeneration that occurs from chronic low-grade inflammation may be a factor there and, and may have a negative impact on, on certain areas of the brain associated with mood. So, so there's that side of things, but, uh, but, Inflammation uh, can lower levels of, of serotonin and other mood-boosting neurotransmitters. So, so potentially, it's it's going on from that perspective. We know that that serotonin is often linked with with depression and anxiety, and uh, and maybe the reason for the low serotonin is inflammation. Uh, so that's one potential uh, mechanism. There is. Uh, it's slowed down a bit. There was certainly a lot of interest in the kynurenum pathway and, mm. and, and some of that and how that may potentially uh, be associated with lower 
serotonin and potentially increased neurotoxic, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, uh, metabolites that might impact on the brain. Um, there's potentially uh, cortisol, and we know that uh, cortisol is dysregulated in, in depression and anxiety, um, and maybe inflammation is a driver or a potential contributor to that to that uh, cortisol changes that are occurring. Um, and uh, even things like, uh, you know, obviously oxidative stress and things like those, that's obviously inflammation can be certainly a driver of. That's interesting. And I'm curious, have you seen any links in the literature between inflammation and BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor? Because I know there is some evidence showing that you see decreased BDNF in some cases, for example, of chronic depression. But is there an inflammatory link there at all? Yeah, certainly uh, inflammation, you know, there's some research showing that you know, excess cytokines, cytokines can lower levels of BDNF. So, mm. uh, so yeah, that's another potential driver too. And I guess maybe if we do a bit of a deep dive now, specifically into anxiety and anxiety disorders, uh, maybe sleep, insomnia, um, you know, are there any links between inflammatory processes and those particular patterns of symptoms in patients? Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, most of the research is, has been done in depression, but there's accumulating research to show that maybe uh, inflammation is, is potential link with anxiety and things like, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's been some studies showing it's with obsessive compulsive disorder um, and, and some around kind of generalised anxiety disorder, but needs to be more research in that area. But I su suspect that that's certainly the case. Um, so... I think what will often what might happen is that uh, inflammation can have an adverse effect on how we think, on how we perceive things. So, so if if I uh, induced inflammation in somebody, let's say I kind of injected them with an inflammatory endotoxin, um, and their mood, let's say their mood was good um, prior to me doing that, so the mood was good, everything was fine, and then I inject them with an endotoxin. What the research has shown is that it changes the way they think. They become more socially disconnected. Um, they're more susceptible to kind of a negative evaluation or social evaluation. So, so inflammation then potentially just changes how we think. And if we can possibly reduce inflammation, then maybe that's going to have a, a, a positive impact on, on how we see the world. So that's one thing, I mean, in terms of sleep, <laughs> there's uh, some research again showing that uh, inflammation may cause, might be contribute to sleep disorders, but then there's also that bi-directional relationship where poor sleep also be a driver of uh, inflammation. Um, and then there's also the link between inflammation and melatonin. We know that melatonin has anti-inflammatory effects, so potentially inflammation has a negative effect on melatonin concentrations, which we know are important for sleep. Could you maybe explain that a little bit further? Because I haven't actually read anything about that interrelationship between uh, inflammation and melatonin. So you're actually saying that increased levels of inflammation in the body will decrease pineal production of melatonin? Is that what happens? Well, you, uh, there hasn't been a lot. I mean, obviously, you've got then, if, um, you know, melatonin is often, you know, serotonin production influences melatonin production. So if you adversely impact, if you have a, if you lower serotonin production, you're going to have adverse impact on, on melatonin. Right. But then the other side of things is because melatonin serves an anti-inflammatory effect, is it, is it possibly uh, impacting on the circadian uh, output of, of melatonin? So 
you know, we know melatonin should be high in the evening and, and, and lower in the morning. Um, I haven't seen a lot of research, but my theory is that, you know, maybe it's also affecting um, when melatonin is excreted and, and impacting on the timing of it. So and that might have a negative effect on sleep. Yeah, that's really interesting because, as you say, the production of, you know, let's say cortisol and melatonin kind of follow that diurnal pattern when a patient is healthy. But, you know, what you're suggesting is perhaps when a patient's inflamed, it's, it's about those hormones being produced in the wrong amounts at the wrong time of day. And that circadian disruption could be contributing to some of those symptoms of sleeplessness, you know, sleep onset, latency, et cetera, et cetera. That's a really fascinating perspective. Yeah, I mean, that's what we... I think a lot of the time... Uh, a lot of maybe some of the mood problems that people are experiencing is because of disruptions in this in that circadian the diurnal rhythm of, of profile um, hormonal output so so we really need to kind of consider um and you know whether that's happening and, and it's always difficult if you measure things you know like you know, crp or, or cortisol for example um, and you do a single measure um, you know, you're not really finding much about what's going on for, the, for that person. So, you know, looking at diurnal measures um, may be more informative and might kind of help us individualise treatment for people. Because even at the moment, you know, if you look at supplementation, you know, we might be giving somebody, um, you know, one tablet twice a day. Now, what happens if the issue is cortisol in the evening? Um, and I haven't got any research to kind of say this is just a theory of mine, is that, you know, if cortisol is a problem in the evening, maybe supplementation should only occur in the evening for that individual. Um, and it's more about kind of regulating it at that time. I don't know, but traditionally in research, we're always doing one tablet twice a day or one tablet three times a day. But maybe based upon the individual, maybe they need more supplementation in the morning and less supplementation in the evening or vice versa. I don't know. And that's something that we, you know, more research needs to be done in that area. Oh, and I, you know, I absolutely agree that it, it is something that's more sort of an emerging area of clinical science, if you like, because, you know, I think we've only really begun to appreciate in, in the past 10 or 15 years, the importance of those circadian rhythms, both on a psychological level, but even on a physiological level, on a cellular level, you know, I'm reading so much new research now about our understanding of diurnal patterns across all sorts of different areas of physiology. And I, I love that idea, Adrian, that, you know, part of what we, we should be seeking to do as practitioners is actually personalising our treatment uh, recommendations based on the patient's diurnal symptom patterns. You know, even if we don't have all the testing across all those time points during the day, their symptom, symptom patterns can often give you an indication of which end of the day they might need more you know, adrenal support, let's say, or, you know, sedating or calming herbs. I, I guess that's what you're sort of re referring to, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. we, traditionally, um, with a lot of the research I've done on saffron, you know, it's one tablet twice a day. Uh, but at the moment, we're actually uh, doing a trial where we're looking at, at the use of saffron just in the evening. So we're looking at maybe doubling the dose. So we'll, at the moment, we've got a study going with placebo controlled, one low dose, one double dose and a placebo just an hour before bed um, and seeing what, what impact that has uh, by just, uh, you know, obviously sleep disorders, there's possibly there's something possibly going on in the evening. Let's supplement in the evening and see what impact uh, the supplement will have by just supplementing in the evening. 
I think that's fantastic because it, it adds an extra dimension and an extra level of almost sophistication and personalization to the treatments that we can offer patients, which I think is um, really, really intriguing. Yeah, well, let's see how it, how it comes about. I think you're right. Yeah, that's, that circadian rhythm is, is it, we're seeing that that has a, a significant role uh, in, our, in our physical and mental well-being. On a slightly different note, Adrian, does it matter where the inflammation is coming from? I mean, you've talked about it as being a kind of a low-grade insidious inflammation, but do we know, like, does it matter if it comes from, I don't know, like an inflammatory bowel disorder or whether it's an osteoarthritis-related inflammation? Does that matter at all from a mental health perspective? Um, I mean, I think, yeah, this, there's that will impact on, obviously, this, the, the level of inflammation. Um, I mean, I, I, I certainly think it matters in relation to us formulating the treatment. Um, and ultimately, it's about identifying what's the drivers of the inflammation for this particular person that I'm seeing. Um, and, and that's ultimately what we need to be doing, uh, assessing, doing a good assessment and trying to work out, well, where's the inflammation coming from and how do I individualise the treatment for this person? Um, and... And if it, obviously if it's a, a, a gut-related issue, then you know how do we uh, improve uh, gut function and digestive function? Um, if it's coming from poor sleep, then uh, uh, it may be a different type of inflammation that's going on. But that doesn't mean you change it. You still look at okay, well, how do I improve somebody's sleep? So I think it's important from that perspective in determining uh, the treatment course, whether it has a different mechanistic effect on the body, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, and I guess ultimately, you know, the, the, the core aim as a practitioner for me would be to just treat the inflammation at its cause, as you say, regardless of where it's coming from, is make sure we're addressing it. But do you feel it's important as well as addressing the root cause of that inflammation? Do you feel it's important to use anti-inflammatories in the short term with your patients who might be depressed or anxious who are inflamed? Yeah, for, for some people, I think certainly short term, um, if you can identify the, the cause of the inflammation and it's an acute cause, then um, while you're trying to, let's say, for example, it's, it's coming from poor sleep, while you're trying to improve the sleep, you might give a, a, a supplement or something for them to take to help reduce some of the cortisol that's going on or the cortisol dysregulation going on or the inflammation that's going on and then treat the uh, sleep and that may take a bit, bit longer. But maybe for some people who have, uh, you know, as I said previously, like some people, you know, if they've experienced trauma as a child, they have kind of constant ongoing inflammation. So maybe it's not even acute. Maybe those individuals need to continue to take an antibiotic mm. uh, chronically. Um, um, and, you know, and they might just, uh, you might, for them, it might be just a, you might be acutely, you might increase the level of, uh, let's say, for example, if you're using curcumin, you might give a higher dose initially and then you have a maintenance dose uh, that you keep them on. So it, it really just uh, depends. I think if, it's, if somebody's just been depressed for a short period of time um, and you can identify the causes and you go, okay, I'm going to give a, a, a herbal intervention to support the lifestyle work that I'm going to be doing and that can be short term. But for others who have experienced ongoing anxiety and low mood and, and ongoing inflammation, maybe we ne they need to be taking something ongoingly. 
I think um, you've raised a couple of points there that I wouldn't mind just exploring a little bit further. One is this link between childhood trauma and, you know, this kind of chronic inflammation. Do we understand from a mechanistic perspective why that actually happens for patients? Well, I mean, obviously some of it would be um, uh, in, in lifestyle related. Uh, mm. so, but, but even when they, they do it, they do the research and they control for some of those lifestyle related factors, diets and, and weights and all those different things. Um, that's uh, even then there's still the inflammation still persisting. So even we control for those factors. Um, so uh, I think part of it is, is, is the thoughts. Um, mm. Like if, if we think negative thoughts, it will drive inflammation. So those individuals who, who have experienced trauma, they're more likely to have a, a negative style of thinking. Um, and that then, uh, and have obsessive type thinking and ruminate about things that have happened to them. And that can drive the inflammation. So just our thoughts can drive inflammation. So uh, maybe it's coming from that perspective. That's really interesting. And I mean, pardon my ignorance, but when we're talking about childhood trauma, is, is there a particular age that we're talking about here? Like, does it matter if the trauma happened at age three versus age 15, for example? Oh, there's even some, well, it, there's even some research showing in utero. Uh, that, oh, wow. Yeah, so, um, and, and we know that uh, if, if mum has experienced significant stress during pregnancy, that then it can have an adverse effect on, on potential mental health outcomes. So, uh, so no, the age can be, um, can, can be any time. Obviously, the earlier, um, well, yeah, it can be any time. Yeah, and I mean, I guess what it speaks to me about as, as you know, I'm not a mental health professional, I'm not trained in this area, but I always see that the neuroplasticity of our youngest patients, you know, that, or sorry, our, in our youngest patients, that's when their brain is most neuroplastic. So in some ways, I almost see that it, it's, it's that point in life when our brain is most susceptible to these um, negative influences and that that, you know, that can leave a, almost a permanent impression, if you like, you know, because it's so malleable in those very early years of life. Yeah, and for some, yeah, and for some people, it, it certainly it may not be reversible. So, so yeah. that's where then uh, it's in gra it's of greater importance that uh, that self care is of high priority. And uh, you know, some people can get away with eating a poor diet, not exercising, not sleeping, and their mood is good. And others uh, just you know, if they do that, their their mood deteriorates significantly, and there's greater susceptibility. And whether that's genetic, whether that's mm. early childhood stuff that's going on. Um, you know, I'd say it's a combination of, of, of both. So, uh, and I, I use, when I see a lot of my, my clients, my patients, I, I talk about how, uh, you know, low mood anxiety is information. And, and it, you could take a, a drug to turn that information off, um, but it's, it's not, you're not treating the cause. Mm. You know, if you're depressed, if you're feeling experiencing low, low mood or experiencing significant anxiety, uh, your body's telling you something's going on and you need to do something. Now, you could take a drug to turn it off uh, or you could look at trying to treat the cause. The same with pain, physical pain. Physical yeah. pain is information. Take an anti-inflammatory or try to treat the cause. You know, ultimately, you know, if you can do both and, and ultimately treat the cause, that's going to result in a greater outcome. Yeah, and I mean, my philosophy has always been from a clinical perspective that there are times, whether you're talking about pain or you're talking about a mental health issue, there are times when that pharmaceutical intervention is necessary to provide that kind of instant short-term relief. But then I think it's also about looking at treating the underlying causes from a longer-term perspective. Definitely, I agree. 
And I mean, one of the um, herbal supplements or, you know, herbal formulations that you mentioned previously was curcumin. And I'm wondering, like, do, do you have any particular favorite natural medicines that you like to use clinically or, or based on your research? Are there any particular supplements or herbs that you, you feel are, are really pertinent to use in patients with this inflammatory mood kind of picture? Yeah, I, th I think things like, uh, I mean, I'm always recommending omega-3s. Uh, mm -hmm. so that's one that I'll uh, certainly recommend for most of my clients. If I think there's, um, or just in general, not even if I think there's inflammation, I think there's potential there for, from a beneficial perspective. Um, if they're you know, experiencing kind of uh, anxiety or, or, or even uh, low energy and things like that, you know, I'll certainly look at your B vitamins and, and those types of mm -hmm. things. Um, and then from other herbal side of things, um, you know, I'm biased. I've done a lot of research on curcumin and, and, and saffron and, and some research on ashwagandha. So they're the ones I'll kind of uh, move towards. But, uh, you know, there's certainly good research on St. John's wort. Uh, from a depression point of view, there's some nice research around SAMI. Uh, um, and, and obviously the other thing is, is really identifying if there's any uh, nutritional deficiencies going mm. on. And, uh, working out what's going on there and try to supplement or, or, or through diet changes. Are there particular nutrients that you find your um, patients are most commonly deficient in? Like, can you see patterns across your patient base in nutrition deficiencies? Well, I mean, for, for a lot of women, it's, it's iron uh, is mm -hmm. one that uh, is, is an issue. I'm seeing a lot of uh, low vitamin D. Um, I haven't noticed like that supplementing with vitamin D will improve their mood. But I, certainly I think it, it has such so many uh, mechanistic roles in the body. I think that's important to, to ensure that vitamin D levels are good. It's always difficult for me because um, I don't just supplement. So when somebody comes in and sees me and I, I give them a, a treatment, it's, it's a combination of a whole bunch of different mm. things. So people then will ask me, well, which ones do you feel works? It's like, I don't know. It's 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 either you know it's probably a combination of, of everything that that we've done. But uh, but I, I think uh, you know um, oh magnesium's the other one. I think yeah. I'll give a lot of uh, use a lot of magnesium's another one that I'll I'll certainly use, particularly I, uh, sleep and stress. Can I ask then, Adrian, with, with reference, let's say, let's start with magnesium. Are there particular dosages that you find? You know, if we're talking elemental magnesium, like, do you mm -hmm. find there's a certain threshold dose that you need to give to get those clinical benefits? Yeah, you do. I mean, people come in and they tell me they're taking magnesium and they're taking one tablet a day of a magnesium oxide or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm aiming for around about that 600 milligrams a day is, is generally where I'm at. Um, and I'll start off slowly for some some people. If it's sleep, I'll try to just kind of more um, supplement and get them to take it in the evening. Um, but if it's a general anxiety, I'll get them to take it twice a day. So that's yeah. probably around about that 600 um, milligram mark for magnesium. And what about your omega-3 essential fatty acids? Do you have a preferred dosage range in, in, in that space? Yeah, generally I'll use um, about 1,500 milligrams of the omega-3s. Um, mm -hmm. I'm... I'm using more the higher EPA version. So there's some yeah. research to, to show that. So I'll generally use higher EPA and the combined of the DHA and EPA for around 1500 milligrams a day. And I mean, there's also that link between EPA being slightly more anti-inflammatory. So, you know, it kind of ties back into that picture of inflammation as being an underpinning driver in some of these patients. Yeah, absolutely.
And can I ask what is often like a bit of a difficult question, but around timeframes, like how long do you normally find it takes patients to improve? I understand you use a very holistic approach, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's not just one supplement or just, you know, cognitive behavioural therapy, but what's a realistic timeframe for a patient to expect their moods to improve? Well, you'll, you know, if you can see, um, I think you'll see improvement within a couple of weeks uh, for, for most people. Um, now, whether they... You know, they're not jumping for joy. They're not necessarily thinking, hey, you know, I'm healed. But, uh, you know, I think you can get quite significant changes, you know, 20%, 30% changes in the first few weeks. Um, but it really just depends on the chronicity of, of, mm. of their problems. So, um, you know, some, some people, they come in and they just, it's an acute issue that's happened and uh, we do a few changes and, and, you know, one or two sessions, they're, they're gone within a couple of weeks. They, they, you know, they just they're improved. Others with more chronic problems, um, it often will take longer. Um, and, you know, and, and for some people, they'll need months and, and, and sometimes years of, of intervention to help heal uh, the mind and the body. And I guess, you know, I mean, the other point as well, as, as you were saying before, is that if some of the, the cause of this underpinning inflammation of the, the mental health issues is, say, a childhood trauma, this could be something that the patient has to manage for the rest of their life. You know, that sometimes I find with patients, it's really important to set the scene as to whether something is treatable in inverted commas versus something that has to be managed ongoing forevermore kind of thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, this is where, um, you know, you, you have somebody coming in and, uh, and let's say you give them, you know, let's say you give them curcumin, for example, because you think there's some inflammation going on and that's, yeah. Fine, and then, but then they're, they're continuing, continuing to be exposed to a stressful environment, whether it's a relationship issues or, 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 um, or, or their coping skills are not great. Their, their coping skills is to continue to worry and uh, and and obsess over the thing that's causing uh, that's you know that's contributing to their problem. So you give them an anti-inflammatory, but then they go and inflame themselves. Yeah. By, being exposed to a, a stressful relationship or or through imagery or imagining an event that's happening um and and that's where you know a lot of your good work then gets undone because you've really got to work with some of the coping skills that are going on but i guess what that speaks to me is is this concept that it's also important to inform patients that it's not necessarily going to be a linear journey you know like the nature of life is such that you might have setbacks from time to time but as long as the general trend is upwards if you like um we're, we're heading in the right direction but like you say from time to time there may be things that you come across in your life that will set you back for a little while but then you need to kind of get back on the program if you like and keep that upwards trend yeah, exactly. I think, uh, you know, that's where, you know, this, this belief that you, you treat somebody and, and they're healed forever, you know, we've really got to make sure we educate our clients and say mm. you know, that it's, it's, it's an ongoing process. And if, if, if you're susceptible to, um, to low mood, there may be times you will experience lapses. And so, yeah, it is, what, you know, what you mentioned earlier, getting, getting back on track again and, uh, and, and in increasing your self-care and doing the things that you need to do. That's fantastic. And I guess, I mean, one question that often does come up, um, you know, in, in clinical practice for me, Adrian, is quite often when patients come to see me for anxiety or insomnia or even depression, they've quite often already been to see their primary medical practitioner. So they're on medications. 
from your perspective, what do you see as the key kind of safety considerations for us as natural medicine practitioners to bear in mind when we're using these sort of supplements in patients with mood disorders? Well, number one is, you know, we should never recommend that they go off their medication. Mm. So that's something that they need to, um, to discuss with their general practitioner. And, and, and look, if they're, I think it's okay. Like if, if they're seeing the general practitioner and um, they want to get off the medication and they, and they feel as though the GP is not supporting that, then, you know, it's okay for us to recommend that they see somebody else who uh, they can have a more collaborative relationship with. So, so that's okay. Um, but uh, obviously, you know, we need to be fully aware of, uh, of the contraindications and interactions of different herbs and, and, and medications. And if we're not quite sure, then, uh, you know, certainly uh, find out and, and discuss with the relevant people to see whether that would be appropriate. Um, and I'm always starting slow, starting low and starting slow. So, uh, you know, there, are, there is some research like, uh, you know, we've done some research around saffron as an adjunct to antidepressant medication and that mm. is positive. So, so I feel confident using saffron, for example, as an adjunct to, um, uh, to pharmaceuticals. But obviously things like St. John's wort or, um, or even samium, I'd be careful about. So. Yeah, and I mean, the good news these days is that there is a lot of information available about some of those drug interactions with different herbs or different nutrients. So as you say, you know, I think it's, it's really up to practitioners to, to be informed about the specifics of what the medication the patient's on and then prescribe accordingly. But also, I love that suggestion of working with their team of healthcare professionals and, you know, potentially if, if their GP might not be open to the idea of... Um, modifying their medication regime but you know a gp who is a little bit more open to that kind of conversation then you know that the patient could change gps you know it's such a simple recommendation but it can be so fundamental for some patients yeah look i mean this is where and i think we're not doing it well enough is you know working through a multidisciplinary approach um yeah, obviously, as psychologists, we're experts in the psychological treatments. Um, naturopaths are, are, are experts in kind of the you know, supplementation, nutrition, and some of the um, lifestyle-based stuff. Um, uh, you know, physiotherapists uh, you know, have expertise in the, the exercise side of things. So if we could utilise each other better, and this is, unfortunately, I don't believe it's happening as, as well as it should. Um, you know, I, I'm, yeah, I mean... I, I'm different in terms of psychologists. Obviously, I've done a lot of training in nutrition and so forth. But a psychologist can provide very basic advice around kind of diets and, and so forth. But if it's if it needs to be more intensive, then they should refer on to to a, to a naturopath, for example, who can do some of that uh, work in a more intensive way. Um, but then vice versa, if um, you know, I think naturopath can do some some basic kind of psychological interventions and support. But if they need more intensive, then they, sh you know, it's important for them to have colleagues that they can kind of refer to, and uh, and I don't think that's happening enough, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree. I think the value of like a professional network is is so great for patients. You know, I mean, the, the analogy I use sometimes with my patients is if you're going to build a house, you're not just going to hire a builder. You need an electrician and a plumber and a tiler, and it's the same sort of concept. You know, I think having a a team of healthcare professionals. Um, can be of real benefit, particularly, I think, as we've been discussing, some of these patients with really chronic, deep-seated uh, issues. Yep, definitely. I, I recall uh, probably about a week ago, I thought I'd be an electrician and uh, <laughs> do some electrical work, but it didn't end well. So uh, 
Uh, You're all so, yeah, right. Exactly correct. <laughs> you certainly woke me up, that's for sure. <laughs> I think that's such a great demonstration of why it's important to sometimes get the professionals in to do the specialist work. I love that analogy, Adrian. A little bit scary, but very relevant. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen, one of the things that we've touched on a couple of times, I guess, is the role of diet in this picture. And, you know, I've read a lot of research recently about this idea of the diet dietary inflammatory index as a way of modifying inflammation levels in the body. I've also read some really great research from the group at Deakin University that have developed this ModiMed diet for, you know, depression. And I'm just wondering for yourself as a clinical psychologist, are there specific dietary recommendations that you make for your patients who are inflamed and have mental health issues? Yeah, look, I mean, it depends. I mean, I have some people who come in and their diet's really good. So, um, so we don't touch that at all. So, um, I mean, the diet could be improved, um, but let's say, let's say I, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, the diet's pretty good. I'd give it, you know, eight out of 10. Um, it could be, could be better, but eight out of 10 is pretty good. And we could mm -hmm. work at trying to get it nine, nine and a half out of 10. But is that really where I should be dedicating our work towards? Um, because maybe sleep is a three out of the 10. So, mm -hmm. Um, and that's what I, I need to kind of be working towards. So, um, but so saying that, if there are dietary interventions um, that I, I think that, that could occur, I mean, for me, it's, I keep it very simple um, because they're coming in, they're depressed, they're anxious, they're feeling overwhelmed, and I don't want to over, overwhelm them by making uh, intervention, dietary interventions that it might be too difficult for them. And, and that's something we need to kind of remember, you know, people with depression are susceptible, are susceptible to, or are quite sensitive to uh, mistakes and failures and errors and things mm -hmm. like that. And uh, so if you recommend this, you know, gluten-free, dairy-free, organic diet, uh, and they're not quite ready for that, then you might actually be setting them up for failure and contributing to, to, to them, you know, to the negative mood. So um, I really look at, um, how they can improve their diet how you know if there is you know three out of ten how do what, what can we do to increase it to a five out of ten um and that might be you know uh decrease decreasing soft drink consumption uh, it might be just having a smoothie in the morning with protein and, and berries and all those different things uh, uh for some people the intervention is just drink more water mm. so, so those are um uh where i start um generally i mean i don't uh have the time to to and you know be cautious because i am a, a sort of psychologist so if they if there's more intensive intervention and they're quite interested in that then i'll refer on who can to somebody who can uh, who can do that more intensive intervention with somebody which you know speaks again to the point you were making earlier about working as part of a team to support the patient holistically but you know i i love the idea as well about don't overwhelm the patient, keep it simple, and then actually give them a positive experience by giving them simple achievable steps that they can, you know, kind of tick that box and feel like they've done something really beneficial for themselves. Yeah, yeah that's it. And that's how we, you know, it's really about them going, you know, what is it that we can do? What changes? It's collaborating, collaborating with your client, working together and mm. then go, what is it? What changes can we work towards over the next week, for example, prior to our next session? So, and that might be, uh, dietary changes it might be uh, exposure to nature and 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 it might be even you know having breakfast but also sitting outside and having breakfast to get that sunlight going so there's all those different things um that can be done but uh <coughs> but and you know and we might also get some supplements but do we overwhelm them with 20 mm. supplements or do we just start 
uh, small <clears throat> and then go from there. Uh, there's also the testing side of things. I know that mm. you know, you know, people can do a lot of testing, but you know, that's expensive and that can overwhelm them. So if I'm going to do it, do I need to do any testing first? And then if I do, then um, you know, which ones do I start off with? Uh, some people, they come in and they've, they've done everything and they come in and they go, I want everything. I want to make all changes, but uh, but most people don't fall into that that category. Yeah, I mean, I think you know that whole idea of keep it manageable, keep it simple is is particularly relevant, as you say, to testing. So, I mean, on that, are there any particular tests that, like, if you had to prioritise just one or two or three tests for a patient, are there any that you do preferentially for mental health patients? I mean, the first thing is use your general bloods. You know, I recommend that they get their you know bloods done for you know iron and thyroid and um, and you know might get levels of CRP. Get them to get them CRP levels measured. Um, I may do you know get them to B vitamins and B12. Interestingly, I did a study on um, uh, recently where we it was 80 people and uh, we measured their B12 levels pre and post, and they were all people with digestive problems. And so we just measured their serum B12. And I think about two or three of them were low in B12, which is, which is not right. I'm sure more mm. lower than, than that, but obviously it just gives an indication of, of how accurate some of, their, you know, some of these tests are. So we've just got to be careful relying too much on, on test results too. Um, uh, vitamin D, I'm pretty confident with. You know, that's another one I might get them to to get measured. So there's there's those. I used to do um, cortisol measures. I don't do them so much anymore. I just uh, a salivary cortisol, uh, maybe a diurnal pattern, or but I mean, I think ideally, if you're going to do saliva salivary cortisol, you really probably want to test three or, over three or four days and get an average. Mm. Um, that's probably the most reliable and. And then, you know, getting people, you know, when you wake up, you know, take it straight away or take it 30 minutes after. And there, there can be a difference. If you take it 30 minutes after versus 45 minutes after you've woken up, um, that's going to have a, an impact on the cortisol levels that are expressed. So, you know, don't brush your teeth. And they do. Don't eat half an hour, you know, for half an hour before you've tested and they have. You know, there's all those different variables. And then you go... Oh, okay, look at these results. Um, they're sky high, but why were they sky high? Were they were they collected as 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 requested? Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think that's for me. It's always about looking at the symptom picture and actually looking at the patient sitting in front of you. Because you know, I've had times where I get test results back, as you say, and they don't quite make sense. And you know, I'm not afraid sometimes to ask for a retest if you're not sure. Yeah. 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 No, well, but you, I mean, you, things like you know, if you CRP, they come back and. CRP is normal. It's like, well, I know there's inflammation going yeah. on. Yeah. You know, so I'm not going to use the CRP as a measure. Let's then, you know, I can see you're living a very pro-inflammatory life. So I'm not going to be guided by that. I'm going to be guided by what I'm hearing and the, and the behaviors yeah. I'm engaging in. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it, it speaks to the value of working as a practitioner holistically where it's like, yeah, use your testing to validate some of what you're seeing in terms of signs and symptoms and, you know, the patient sitting in front of you. But uh, sometimes you also, I think of it almost as a type of clinical intuition that you develop when you actually look at the patient in front of you. Definitely. So maybe, I mean, one thing we haven't touched on, Adrian, is, is lifestyle suggestions. And I'm wondering whether you have any particular recommendations that you favour when you're talking to patients who might be anxious or stressed or depressed from a lifestyle perspective. Yeah, look, 
one thing we've got to remember is that when it comes to depression, anxiety, or other you know, mental health conditions, um, you know, the way we think will affect how we feel, but the way we think will also affect our physiology. So if we're spending all day thinking about um, a bad relationship or we're worrying about something, then that is going to, to drive inflammation, cortisol, oxidative stress, have a negative impact on BPNF, all those different things. So, so for me, it's kind of going, okay, what other things can you engage in that uh, move you away from in your head? So spending time in your head is not good. Let's get you spending more time in your life. And, and that doesn't occur by going, yeah. You know, and people will say, oh, just don't think about it. Well, the more you try not to think about it, the more you, you will think about it. However, if you have something else to think about, something else to engage in, um, you're less likely to think about your problems. So, if you, so often I'll think, get people to think about things that they find soothing, pleasurable, engaging, and that will then get them out of their head mm. and into their life. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and that's really what we want to do. So whether that be exercise, spending time in nature, uh, you know, spending time with uh, uplifting people rather than toxic in individuals, um, um, you know, though engaging in meditation or relaxation, you know, those, and it, it is very much individualized. What is yeah. it that you will engage with? Um, what would get you out of your head? And we know that if somebody's spending time in nature and they're appreciating nature, that's going to have a very soothing effect on cortisol and things like that. Yeah, there is some really interesting research coming out, isn't there, about that, the benefits of grounding and spending time in nature, whether it's in the bush, in the forest, by the ocean. I find that whole area of research so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. There's, a, there's one interesting study that I often refer to there's one study where they actually did cognitive behavior therapy uh, on people and uh, and so there were two groups one received cognitive behavior therapy in a hospital setting and another one did they did cognitive behavior therapy in out in nature and uh, and so the, the treatment was exactly the same but the setting was different and uh, and we saw that the the, the nature-based cbt had far greater effects on, on outcomes and mood and cortisol than the the uh, the one done in the hospital setting. Oh, I love that. I'm just moving my clinic to the forest now. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> That's yeah, such exactly. a lovely, lovely, um, you know, kind of research study to do. I love it. Yeah. And I mean, I think it, it just, it speaks to the fact that, you know, we evolved with nature all around us and that sometimes modern life can disconnect you so much from that, that just encouraging patients to reconnect can be therapeutic. Yeah, exactly. And then it's only, it doesn't have to be major things. It's, it's, yeah, it's even opening your blinds in the morning and, and getting your lighting and sitting outside. Uh, if, you, if you're going to have a coffee in the morning, make sure it's, you're, you're sitting next to a window. Uh, mm. You know, those types of things aren't, aren't huge. But, you know, ultimately, you know, my philosophy is always, you know, if we can make 10 small changes, yeah. each of them individually are going to result in dramatic mood improvements, but collectively they're going to result in significant improvements over time. And I think it speaks again to the point you made earlier about 10 small changes is achievable for someone who maybe has a chronic, you know, depression or a chronic anxiety disorder, whereas one massive change is it's the mountain is too big for them to climb. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, even for, for people who aren't depressed, it's often quite difficult for them to make those changes. So, uh, so yeah, let's just look at, you know, ultimately small changes and, you know, there's no magic bullet, but it's uh, yeah. you know, collectively you're, you know, you're resulting in, I think, yeah, 
that's going to result in this far greater likelihood of improvement. That's fantastic. And I have to say, Jim, you know, I mean, this has been such an amazing conversation, but I kind of feel like there's going to be some areas here that practitioners may want to do some further reading and explore a little bit deeper. Do you have any resources you could direct us to if, if our listeners do want to find out a bit more about this whole area of, you know, inflammation, mood disorders, et cetera, et cetera? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, look, there's, there's, I think there's some uh, lots of good training out there a lot of good workshops so if people are interested in learning more about this there's you know there's a lot of good workshops offered by you know obviously um you know there's this podcast and 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 other companies uh, that, mm. that podcast so they're always really good um you know there's your, your functional medicine uh, doctors who release mm. your different books and your mark mark Hyman's and things like that that are um often really useful uh from that perspective um, and obviously, you use your different, you know, different training courses, you know, your ACNAM and, and Functional um, Institute of Functional Medicine, all those types of uh, uh, organisations uh, that are useful. Um, yeah, and then obviously, people are interested in the research. Uh, yeah, it's a bit drier, but uh, certainly you can do some, you know, lit search and on your PubMed and look at, you know, type in the word inflammate. Generally, kind of your reviews, you know, if you're going on PubMed, type in inflammation, depression, and the word re review, because um, it's the review articles that you want to really kind of look at. And, uh, and, and, and you can get a lot of those for free and, and download those and, and get information from that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. I mean, you know, often like your meta-analyses or review articles are a great place to start. So, and, and, you know, as someone who has a real passion for the nerdier side of life, I don't find that stuff dry at all, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. I mean, that's... Uh, yeah, no comments, yeah. <laughs> but no, look, I think there's some really good suggestions there. And as you say, you know, some of them are more um, actual training programs, others are more just bite-sized chunks of information. But I think the key thing that I've noticed is that the need for practitioners, uh, for natural health practitioners, to be able to work in the mental health field has actually increased, I think, a lot in recent years. And I personally feel that it's going to continue to increase, particularly, you know, post-COVID, we're heading into a recession here in Australia. So, you know, I think there's an increased need generally for people to be comfortable working in this space. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where, you know, certainly that, that self-education and, and, and learning is, is really important and, and knowing when to refer on. So yes. I think that's uh, extremely important. And we know that uh, you know, the link between mental health problems and, and other uh, physical or medical conditions is, is huge. So, uh, so it's really important to, to look at how we can kind of support um, people uh, from a, a mental wellbeing perspective. Absolutely. And I think that's such a wonderful note to end on. And I, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time and for sharing all of that knowledge and that information with us, Adrian. That's no problem at all. Thank you for uh, having me on. Fantastic. And I also just wanted to say thank you to those of you who tuned in. We really hope you found this discussion as interesting and useful as I did. And uh, please tune in again next week to hear another great podcast from those of us here at Biopractica. To continue the conversation or find out more about our products and educational resources, please head to biopractica.com.au. Biopractica, empowering healthcare professionals.